Hi, this is Roberta Fallon. I'm here at the Moore College uh, radio station, TGMR, and I'm here today with Ron Klein. Ron is an artist. Hi, Ron. Hi, Roberta. Good morning. Um, good morning. And Ron is a, f a personal friend of mine. We've known each other for many years. He's this awesome artist, sculptor. He thinks he's a big thinker. He does a lot of traveling the world to do research and find materials that... Uh, come to play in his installations. Uh, right now, he's got a wonderful installation at Abington Arts Center through June 23rd, and I really hope you get up to see it because you will love it. It's a very complex, cosmic piece about humans in a bigger world, and I think everybody should think about that a little bit and go see Ron's work, which will facilitate your thinking. So, Ron, let's talk about, let's get right into your artwork. Okay. Uh, your installations, which is what you do, mm -hmm. are big aggregations of material. Some of it is found material, bi biological material, mm -hmm. and some of it is industrial material. And then you have this magical way of wetting them together and making them explode on the wall in these arrays of materials that talk to me, I think at any rate, about being a human being in a complex ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So how long have you been making these wall installations with materials that are pinned to the walls? Because prior to that, I know your work as inflatables. Correct. So talk about the- I would the say since, uh since the late 80s, I've been doing that. And, uh, you know, it was initially inspired by, uh, well, let me take a few steps back. When I was growing up, when I was eight or so, uh, I joined a club, the National Geographic Travel Club. And once a month, you would get a, a little pamphlet from a particular country. And in that little book, little magazine, were a series of stamps and uh, some kind of verbiage to match the image. And I would take the stamps out, I would read about the location, I would stick them in, and I immediately really became fascinated with the world and with traveling and the differences in people. Um, you know, ironically, one of my favorite uh, books at that time was on Burma, and eventually I, I found that book and eventually made it back uh, to Burma. So I've had a fascination. I, two of my biggest heroes growing up, uh, say around age 10, 11, 12, were Marco Polo and Ben Franklin. And, uh, you know, in Marco Polo, I saw this amazing guy who just was an adventurer um, and saw things for the first time, and that really inspired me. Um, and also Ben Franklin, um, you know, I wanted to be an inventor. I loved how he invented things, that he had a free spirit, that he also traveled um, and wanted to know his world. So those guys were big inspirations for me. Um, inventor, that seems, I'm not surprised at that because I think your work is very inventive and you're mashing together of the biological material and the industrial material is it's an invention it's not functional but it right. is invented and, and I think those things inventing. are my life mm -hmm. the the industrial world 
is a big part of my life, my daily life, um, as is the world from nature. And it's those two cultures, the culture of uh, nature and the culture of industry that I'm interested in understanding. Uh, and I mean, I'm making the work because I don't understand it. And making things is my way of coming to grips with understanding myself, I think. And I think if I understand myself first, I can understand the bigger world. And uh, so, you know, that's a big reason and a big inspiration for traveling, understanding different people, um, and in a very natural way, being interested in industry because I'm coming from the industrial world but a profound love of nature. Uh, I love not only to be in nature, but I love to look at nature for information, um, repetition, um, cell structures. Uh, to me, nature gives me a lot of information on how I want to construct sculptures. Um, so really, in, in my life and in my world, it's the morphing of uh, industry and nature that hopefully is going to give me understanding of my world and. Uh, more hopefully give a viewer an insight into one person's journey and, and maybe it can inform them also. So talk a little bit about order and chaos. In your artist statement on your website, you talk about how you're interested in both. <laughs> yeah, take a look at that. Um, and you know, th there is order in nature, but there's also chaos and there is order, there can be order in the human world, although it's problematic sometimes, mm -hmm. and often there's a lot of chaos. So do you see them as oppositional in a way, or, and, and are you trying to make order out of chaos? Yeah, well, I, you know, I would say that um, something that's purely ordered is purely boring, and something <laughs> that's purely chaotic is nothing I can look at. So I'm interested in blending uh, order and chaos and riding that edge. Um, if I'm doing my job, um, the chaos and order blend well. If I'm not doing my job, it's too chaotic and you can't see what you're looking at. So, I mean, it's constant uh, both in life and in the work, the blending of uh, chaos and order, riding that edge. Um, and trying to understand what I can get away with. Because typically, when I'm making work, I'll err on the side of chaos, and then I'll pull back. Uh, rather than erring on the side of order, which I consider a little too uh, stagnant, a little too boring, I'll err on the side of chaos, and then I'll pull back from that um, until it's where I think it needs to be in terms of Yes, it's chaotic, but yes, it's ordered enough for you to look at. And I think, uh, you know, once again, knowing myself uh, and what I can get away with, hopefully others can look at the work and, and find that also. You know, they could challenge part of it and go, this is too chaotic to look at. Um, or, on the other hand, you know, this is too ordered, it's too stagnant. So, you know, I'm interested in riding that edge um, and experimenting. And I see the work as uh, an experiment, experiment in really my trying to know myself and therefore hopefully knowing others. Well said. Um, let's talk about those others. I was out at Abington and looking at your piece where there's a nice bench. It's under low lighting. 
So it said to me that this is a spiritual kind of contemplative piece that I can sit down and spend time with. So even though it's not a video, it kind of is a time-based piece that invites you to sit there with it. Um, I met someone who was working up at Abington, and they were talking with me about your piece and how much they loved it, and they said, it's like jewels on the wall. You know, it has that, I don't want to say bling, but it has a golden sort of almost jewelry finesse to it. But on the other hand, it's made up of little kind of bacterioid pieces, some bigger, some smaller, that swim encircled by the beautiful encirclements or outside of it, like bursting mm -hmm. out. So talk about your audience. I see your work as very publicly accessible. And I think some of your work has been in publics and is in public spaces. And I think it does really, really well there. Like you had a piece at the airport. Correct. Did you get a lot of feedback I from did. people? I did. And actually, the, the sculpture at Abington is an offshoot of what I did at the airport. Um, you know, just going back a, a few years, I started this idea, uh, I think in around 2014, I had a show at Rochester Contemporary. And that was the first time I really wanted to deal with the idea of DNA, um, repetitive information, eternal information that can't be extinguished and can't be removed. Uh, I titled that piece Set of Instructions, which is kind of slang for, uh, for DNA. Uh, after that, I did uh, the next year. I did the piece at the airport, which was a further exploration of that. And what I couldn't do at the airport, I tried to do at Abington. I wanted it to be more congested, a little bit more chaotic. I wanted to light it uh, in a dark, more emotional way, because when it's lit too bright, it's too domesticated. Um, you can see it in one shot, and that's it. But by my leaving it kind of dark and uh, more emotional, I felt like I forced myself to go up to the surface and look at the objects because I couldn't really see them that well because the lighting was dark. And I felt like that was a good way for me to uh, hopefully get the viewers interested in looking at that information also. Um, you know, each one of the objects in there is something that means a lot to me, that uh, has a memory attached to it. Some of the memories are really deep, others are more superficial. But each object uh, in there reminds me of a place or a spot or um, uh, a moment in time. Uh, and I think if you look at the objects in there, it's autobiographical. It's who I am as a person. It's what I like to see. It's it's what I like to collect. Um, as I said earlier, the morphing of nature and industry is not only you know conceptual in the work, but it's physical. Where I try to take objects directly from nature uh, and combine them with the industrial objects, uh, not only because I think it's interesting and provocative and and beautiful in its own way, but hopefully there's a, a sense of contemplation about what does this mean? Uh, you know, why, why is this guy doing this? Um, and, and trying to kind of draw 
similarities and analogies between uh, yin-yang, between uh, order, chaos, between industry and nature, and taking the opposites in my world and trying to make sense of them. And for me, uh, making art is is trying to make sense of things, you know, and hopefully when viewers look at it, they can understand it in the same way I do. All of that said, I want to say there's also a streak of whimsy in your work and some fun to be had. I mean, the, the thing that I thought about when I saw the Abington uh, piece is where's Waldo? Because there's a seduction to this massive ar array of, I don't know, a thousand or more, maybe thousands of objects. Correct. And when you get seduced to go very close to the objects to see them, you have these aha moments where you, it can be a lot of fun. There are, in, in this installation, there's something that looks like a little boat, uh, which I believe to be a pod, a seed pod, a very large seed pod, open, and it's been filled with wax, and then that sitting- was a small boat. That was I it a traded, small boat? I traded an indigenous young boy, probably 12 years old. I traded in my pocket knife for that. Uh, in the he had made the boat? He had made the boat. His name is written on, if you look at it, his name is written on the I side saw of the that. boat. Um, and they're a, a tribe called the Ashwar, um, very, very deep in uh, the Ecuadorian Amazon. And we went in there, and I traded him for that. And when I got it back home, you know, I've used wax because it reminds me of the, of the humidity and the gloss and the uh, omnipresent moisture um, at the equator. So when, by filling it with wax, you know, somehow it brought back that memory of water to me and things glistening. Uh, yeah, and sometimes you, you know, tint I, the wax bluish. Correct. You know, I would say I, uh, I prefer to think of those aha moments uh, when I'm doing, when I'm making art well as being more about being clever um, and when you see something done in an unusual or clever way, you kind of smile for a second. And I don't interpret that, interpret that as being whimsical. I'm more interpreted as, aha, you know, this guy thought of doing it in a way that I didn't think of doing it. You know, many, so the best compliment, uh, one of the best compliments I ever get is people will say to me when I have a show, I've stepped on that a hundred times and never noticed it. You know, well, my job is in as an observer, you know, and my job is to look at what others may not see uh, and hopefully bring it to their attention that, yeah, this has intrinsic beauty or this is intrinsically emotional or um, there's an attraction to it. So anyways, you know, I, I prefer... Uh, and I do the same thing, you know, when I go see a show, if somebody takes me to a new place that I've never been to before, I kind of smile and, um, and say thank you in a way um, because they thought of something I couldn't think of. Mm -hmm. But I think, and I, I hear what you're saying here, but I think that you have your own aha moments when you put things together that probably give you more than a smile. Um, getting back to the little boat with the, um, the name on it, embedded in the wax, if I'm remembering correctly, are three little ladies' hair buns, gray hair, 
Is that right? Oh, okay. I know. I know the element you're talking about. There are four gray hair buns. <laughs> yes. Okay. I know. It, it's shaped like a boat. It's shaped made like out a boat. of wax. Correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so um, yeah, that is, that is such that is such an unusual pairing of a boat and a human aspect that is so tight. It's a pre-purchased hair bun which Correct. I'm sure you can get at a hair store or a flea market or whatever, mm -hmm. but there are three of them and they're exactly the same and they're peas in a pod, but they're human references in a boat. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought that was a very beautiful and complicated yet understandable. Thank you. Sometimes I get lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you play with a lot of materials and within your ability to play with wax and seed pods and things from the rainforest floor and then the buns the hair buns and dice and I mean let's let's do an inventory of some of the things mm -hmm. that are in that piece I'm only going to remember some but you can fill me in baseball mitt that you've that's taken apart baseballs themselves uh, lots of balls golf balls dice um, what else is in Pods, there? Pods, toilet brush cleaners. Yeah, you know, uh, I thought that was new. That is that what that blue is the down blue at is the bottom? The blue is a toilet brush cleaner. Cleaner, um, yes. You know, held together with a, a pod from the equator. Yeah, and the encirclements are... I saw those as, as cells, and I mm -hmm. saw the whole installation as... Um, those larger formats <clears throat> holding the information, holding kind of genetic information, things that I love on a day-to-day -day basis, and the smaller areas that encircle or kind of envelop the, um, the cells as kind of veins or arteries. Uh, I saw the whole thing as kind of a, an insight into my interior, whether that would be DNA, my brain, uh, the body, um, if you could slice open a part of somebody's spirit and actually look at it or a part of their body and look at what's meaningful to them, that's why I saw the envelopment of the cells um, in this installation. Talk about music a little bit because there's always been a rhythmical mm -hmm. and I, drum beating sort of music to your work. Do you play well, an instrument? I do. You know, uh, when I was in college, when I finished college, I made a big decision in my life, and that was, do I want to be a musician or do I want to be an artist? Uh, and I felt at the time that there were so many musicians that were better than me at that stage at getting out of college that I thought my odds were better to become an artist because it took a long time to get good. And I, I thought, I want to be in this for the long haul, that it could take me years and years to get where I want to, but that was more the journey or the adventure that I wanted. What was your instrument? I play guitar. I play accordion. play a tiny bit of saxophone. Um, but the, the work, I think, is really influenced by music. You know, I think what you listen to in a particular moment has a lot to do with what you make you know for example i mean jazz is more abstract it's more about improv um and when i'm in the studio making work i'm trying to improvise and i think certain kind of music helps me do that the format of music uh 
informs the work, for example. You know, you can't have music playing at 10 the whole time and nothing but noise. There has to be periods of rest, periods of quiet. And I've interpreted, tried to interpret that in my work also, where there are areas of extreme chaos surrounded by areas of order or quietness, which allow you to look at the chaos. Uh, much the same in music. There are periods of quiet where you're very attentive to the next note that's going to come up. So, you know, I love all different kind of music. I think music informs um, my work. You know, I still love to uh, to make music myself uh, and look at the work as musical at a level. It is, and. Just switching gears slightly, I want to talk about the video that is on your website of the trip to Guyana, which Correct. is equatorial. Correct. And it's this wonderful 11-minute video that I assume you shot. Yes. And it starts out with a shot full on down nose to nose with an alligator or a crocodile. Correct. Which Cayman. is... Cayman. Black a Cayman? Black Cayman. Okay, well, it looks like one of yeah, those beasts. Yeah. Anyway, and you're there, focused on it, for what seems to be a very long time. <laughs> so it's quite suspenseful. And then you go on, and there's water, and you're in a boat. and But it's very quiet, this mm -hmm. video. And there's not a music in it, mm -hmm. per se, mm -hmm. except maybe the quietude, you know, the whispering of the river. And just as you were talking about there needs to be moments of number 10 and moments of quietness so you can see things and hear things properly, I wonder if your expeditions are the quietude where you're in this extreme environment, and maybe you can talk a little bit about your, mm -hmm. your journeys, and you just are quiet. You know, you don't have outside distractions, mm -hmm. but you have nature. That is well, that, that video really uh, follows me around for one day uh, in the Guyanese Amazon looking for materials. And I spend a lot of time looking at the ground. I'm either looking up at the trees, up at the sky, looking for what's going to fall on the ground, or I spend a lot of time looking at the ground um, and looking. I seldom have a plan. Uh, like I'm looking for this or I'm looking for that. I try to remain completely open. And when I see something that I like, I grab it. Um, you know, one of my rules, and I don't have many, but one of the rules when I'm there is if I see something I like, take it, because I'm not going to be back again. Um, so that kind of follows me around uh, in the jungle looking for materials. Uh, and as you see in the video, Towards the end of it, there's like a plethora of, of really awesome uh, pods and materials. The indigenous people who know me, because in Guyana, I've been there three times, and I try to get the same guide every time. Um, and when they see me coming, they say, oh, the trash man's here to clean up the floor <laughs> of the jungle. And, uh, and that is so true. You know, one person's trash is another treasure. Uh, and to me, the floor of the jungle is full of treasure. Uh, my first real inspiration was I took a trip uh, to where Brazil, uh, Paraguay meet, and Bolivia. It's called the Pantanal. 
And I remember I was in a dugout canoe. I pulled over to a water lily. The water lily pad was the size of me. And so I got out of the boat and I just laid on it. And I thought to myself, this is incredible. This, uh, this small thing from nature is supporting a human being. And at that point, I started to look deeper into how does it do it? What's the construction? What's the cellular mechanism? What's the paradigm? How does this thing maintain this absolute strength but be very lightweight? And that, those were the kind of things or the kind of information that I was looking for um, in nature to inform me. The idea of repetition is something I'm really interested in. To me, repetition makes the world go. Uh, it's the small things that create the order that support the larger things. In other words, the smallest cells uh, create bones. Um, the smallest molecules uh, create the larger things. And, and, and at that point, I, I started to think, if I can understand small structure, then I can understand the larger world. And by trying to understand repetition and how it works in a kind of a formal way, it really helped me understand the systems of construction of the bigger world. You know, just looking at you know, how a building's constructed. Bricks, small bricks make a huge building. Small planks of wood on a floor make a huge floor. And it's those small objects that I find uh, ultimately to be informative to me, to show me how to make bigger things. And if you look at the, uh, the sculptures, uh, whether it was the ones that I had up in New York in the fall or whether it's just larger installation, they're all made up of lots and lots of small things which create uh, the structure to enable you to see something large. So uh, nature's good at that. <laughs> and that really helped teach me what I needed to learn. Um, well, there's something in the human psyche that gravitates to grids, and a grid is repetitious. It's comfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, it allows you to relax. Mm -hmm. the, in Eastern religion, they have mandalas, mm -hmm. which, you know, you can look at to meditate, to relax. And I think repetition um, allows you to relax and look at things and see order in chaos. So that was one of my first kind of insights of, you know, what can nature teach me in terms of making art. So where are you going next? What's your... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, don't know. have a trip planned yet? Not in this moment. I'm recovering. <laughs> um, you know, I feel uh, that I've done a lot of work this year. And I, uh, you know, I go through periods where I need to collect uh, you know, most people who make drawings or paintings, um, they just make a mark with a pencil or a brush. When I want to make a mark, it's got to be an object. So I have to have a huge library of, uh, of objects. And that requires uh, traveling, finding things. Storage. Um, storage, correct. Where do you store everything? I store it in my studio. My, you know, one floor of my studio is just organic materials, and they're uh, in Tupperwares, and they're organized much like a library. Uh, stacks and stacks of kind of smaller things, larger objects. Uh, do you thorny, have to clean things? things? I'm sorry. Do you have to clean things when you? I do bring, clean them when, when I get them. them. 
in the jungle, yeah, I clean them completely before I bring them back home. Have you had anything spoil on you? Because I would think there's a lot of molds if you're picking things up off the floor of the rainforest. You you know, something interesting, for example, if you go to Florida and you look at a mahogany tree, uh, the the pods or the seed pods are probably three inches. If you go to Costa Rica, down deep into Central America, they're about double the size. But when you get to the Amazon, they're about quadruple the size. And that's the reason I started to go to the equator, was Mm. to find the most robust nature, to find the biggest, best, toughest nature. So they are almost like petrified wood. It's, they're, they're actually not as fragile as you would think they are. Mm. Um, they're actually very strong. So I haven't had, um, many things spoil you know also part of my criteria when i'm looking down on the ground is can i get this home is it going to fall apart you know so you know kind of intrinsic in the search or the journey are certain qualifiers you know it's too weak it's going to fall apart it's going to cause me trouble later so that's the criteria when i'm looking you know it's a little bit looser at home when i can go to flea markets, farmers' barns, I can be much more selective and typically things from our world are industrial and they're not going to fall apart. You're plastic? Correct. <laughs> Correct. Do you, when uh, you've been to the rainforests a lot, do you see over the period of time that you've been doing this degradation of the rainforest? We're definitely, all definitely. The indigenous paranoid people, about it. Yeah, the indigenous people who are uh, uneducated, they never went to school, you know, are truly some of the smartest people I've ever met. And being life smart, to me, uh, is better than being book smart. They know how to survive in their environment. Um, they are at one with their environment. And I think there's probably very few of us living here who can say the same thing. We're reliant, completely reliant uh, on uh, external, you know, how do I get my food? Well, at the grocery store. Mm-hmm. How do I gas up my car, etc. cetera. Uh, so their sense of things is generational. Um, they, the people I'm looking for seldom have a written language. It's an oral language. It's been passed on from generation to generation. And generational knowledge is what I call wisdom. And they are wise. They know how to exist within their environment and how to make it work for them. Uh, so they take care of their environment. Yeah, and they do realize, they see the yes. rest of the world encroaching on them? Do you ever get into that well, with them? Well, let me just back up for a second. They notice that the irregularities in the rain are driving them crazy. Mm-hmm. For example, there could be a 30-foot difference between wet and dry season. So I try to go in dry season where I can walk around more. You still need dugout canoes, but you can still be on foot. They notice this is crazy, the differences in uh, dry and wet season um, is intolerable to them because they exist on fishing and hunting and farming. Uh, And this is how they survive. They don't have a store to go to. So yeah, they see the impact. Um, The more remote uh, I try, 
on every trip to go to the most remote place I can find and I try to be the first foreigner that they've ever seen so that we can actually have a great conversation through an interpreter about what do you think you know without them having been contaminated uh, from Western culture yet, I can get a real honest answer. And most of the answers I'm interested in are, are spiritual answers. For example, you know, who's your God? Do you even believe in God? Uh, you know, questions like that, deep spiritual questions are what I'm interested in and making those connections between indigenous people who are, quote, uneducated, but as I've said, super smart, and all the people in America who uh, can go to various religious sanctuaries to try to understand their own relationship uh, with the other world. And, you know, I can say I've learned so much from indigenous people um, and their belief systems. And the irony of, of a lot of it is I was in Madagascar on one side of the world and I was uh, at the border of Guyana and Brazil on the other side of the world with two completely different tribes who have known nothing of one another. They know nothing of the outside world. However, their architecture, their sense of family, their sense of social structure, uh, their sense of spirituality is the same. And so it leads me to believe there are intrinsic things in the human condition that are true, and uh, and that's part of uh, of a that's part of the reason that I travel and want to speak to these people is to try to understand what are the the common things, the things that we all share, even though I may have never seen them, they may have never seen me. Uh, so it's fascinating, you know, and that's part of part of what I'm interested in. It's got very little to do with uh, the collection of materials or the art. Uh, that I'm making, but it's got to do with trying to understand myself. And as I said earlier, by understanding the small, you can understand the large, hopefully. Do you hope to do something with all of this knowledge that you've gained from interacting with the indigenous peoples? Like, you, I mean, just yes, telling I, me yes, about it, it yeah, seems yes, like... Yes, I would, you know, and I, I think you know I've made videos, but since I am not a filmmaker... Um, I'm not, I don't consider myself really good at telling a story on film. Um, although I have shot a lot of video because every time I go to these places, um, I say to myself, I'm gonna, I'm gonna document this because this is so extraordinary. Um, however, I've never really compiled it into something that's succinct, um, and viewable. But I think I always have the hope that I'm going to run into an editor or I'm going to be able to give them all of my raw footage and say, can you please make sense of this? Because in my mind, I make sense of it. But when it comes to visually telling the story, it's more problematic. The video you know, that you discussed, which is called Looking Down, um, I think was relatively successful because it, it, it only kind of discussed... Uh, one day in your life of being in the jungle and looking for things, which is pretty easy for me to do. But when you get into talking about, um, do you believe in reincarnation? Are you going to come back again? Um, do you believe that that when you die, you die? When I my last trip to Ecuador, I mean, these are questions that I repeatedly asked, 
And the answers were fascinating. Um, for example, we don't kill deer because if you don't behave this time, you come back as a deer. So this tribe does not kill deer because they live in fear that they're going to come back as a deer. Um, you know, getting back to the, the kind of social things that are going on, Madagascar, they don't have cemeteries. Okay, that's on one side of the world. That's an island off the east coast of Africa. In Ecuador, where I was in the Amazon, they also don't have cemeteries. They bury their dead in a room in the house. Okay, in Madagascar, they bury their dead in caves, and they do a turning of of the of the uh, uh, you know turning of the graves. Um, so there are definite uh, connections that I'm really interested in. Uh, but not being a scientist and not being someone so interested in empirical information, mine is just one guy out there trying to figure things out. Uh, and I think if it was held up to any kind of science, they would call it blasphemy. You know, this isn't science. Uh, but it's, it's one observer's look at uh, the connections in the human race, which are really wonderful. You know, people, people often ask me, are, are you afraid when you go into these areas, um, being the first that they've seen? And I say the same thing, no. I mean, people are wonderful intrinsically wherever you go. It's only, um, you know, maybe more aggressive situations that can bring out the worst in people. But I think if they're living in a peaceful environment where they're at one with their environment, there's nothing to worry about. And I think that lesson uh, should be something that maybe all of us should learn. Uh, wow. I think we should end on that note. Okay, That's a great. beautiful way to end. Thank you, Ron oh, Klein. Thank you. Thank you. It's been it. great talking with you. Thank you. Oh, you went over. <laughs>